1 Timothy 5, and this evening we'll be going through verses 1 through 16. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope set on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Lord, we pray that as we look into a text, especially a text like this that to us seems a bit culturally arcane, that you would give us some wisdom that you would help us to think through the implications of what your word says here in regards to how we're to treat one another in the family of God. And Lord, ultimately, that we would see how we can glorify you as we practice these principles within the church. Lord, we love you and we praise your name and we ask that you would do all of this for your glory in your name. Amen. Well, when we read a text like this, it's easy to, as we read it, think, this seems weird. (laughs) 
Well, I don't even understand all of the things that's being said here. Some of it makes perfect sense and some of it frankly doesn't. Widows were not highly favored in biblical society. A lot of times they were the cast-offs. They were not seen as highly regarded as the patriarchs in the family. We find very early on in the early church that the, one of the first issues that arose was a dispute and a debate over what to do with widows and what to do in this kind of setting. In Acts chapter 6, it says, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. If you remember in Acts chapter 2 when um, the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 in the upper room there and they went out and began to preach the gospel, they preached the gospel in all kinds of languages to all kinds of people, not just Jewish-speaking Jews, not just Hebrew-speaking Jews, but all kinds of people. And when the Holy Spirit brought into the church people from all over the known world at the time, they were confronted with a problem. What are we going to do with all these people? You know that you don't need an intercultural communications class at school to teach you that talking to somebody and interacting with somebody from a different culture is tricky. It can pose all kinds of problems. They come with their traditional and cultural expectations and manners of speaking. Think about it. For us as Americans, we're very, you know, very verbal oriented. Now you can get certain cues. My wife last night just mentioned that I had a nonverbal communicative cue that I gave her and she noted that and we laughed a little bit about that and didn't have to use any words. But other cultures, that's a huge part of the way they communicate, nonverbally. Gestures, facial intonations and whatnot. So within the early church, they had this Jewish core within the church who was not probably intentionally but simply out of the fact they were taking care of the ones they knew and their own but what was happening is they were neglecting other people they were neglecting these widows within the church who were gentile speaking not gentile in race or gentile in ethnicity but in their speech and in their cultural mannerisms. And so these widows that were being neglected, there was a threat that division was going to come within the church over this. So they summoned the full members of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of God's word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves Seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Then we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then they chose these guys who we know as the first deacons within the church. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. Point. 
Number one. As Christians, you have a new family. A lot of times, especially in biblical days, the family that you were a part of disowned you for your faith in Christ. You were denying as you turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior all of the old gods, all of the old traditions, all of the old customs, all of the idols and everything that went along with that old way of worshiping and living. And with that, you were rejecting the entire community that you were a part of. And a lot of times, in a lot of ways, when you converted from one faith to another, your family was done with you. Your society was done with you. Your culture was done with you. It happened to Jews. It happened to Gentiles. It happened all over the world at the time. And you know as well as I do, it still happens today. I follow Christ. That doesn't mean everybody in my family follows Christ. I remember years ago, um, before Andy and I got married, I have one cousin that I had any kind of real relationship with. And he was what I would call violently agnostic. And when I became a Christian, I used to have a lot of fun with him. <laughs> we used to do all kinds of things together when we were around each other. But when I became a Christian, I, I changed. I was truly born again. And my father asked me to preach at his, my cousin's, my aunt's funeral service. And I preached a little message. I wasn't very good at it. I don't even remember what I said. And, but I do remember thinking I need to at least give the gospel here because I know my cousin isn't saved. And he, as I was giving the gospel, laughed at the words I was saying and got up and walked out. And the last time that I heard from him was at our wedding. And he said that he gave our marriage about, what, three, four months. <laughs> Something like that. Bonds are tight when you are indulging in sinful cultural practices. A lot of times you're unaware just how sinful those cultural practices are before Christ. But once you become a Christian and you begin to look at some of the things and ways that your family lived and family functioned, you realize, wow, we were a great distance away from the Lord. And when you come to Christ and you start loving him and following his ways, you lose oftentimes members from your family. Unfortunately, that is the case. And so what we're looking at here today, what the problem was in Acts chapter 6, was that there was a cleaving from the old family because they were embracing Christ. But the threat in the church was that the new family, united in Christ, under the fathership of God, was not cohesive as it should have been. It was not coming together the way that a family should and the family does. In fact, Jesus predicted this in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth and I would that it were already kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided against three, two against two, and two against three, and they will all be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and they're all fighting with one another. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of chapter 12, Jesus is sitting here talking and teaching, and his family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, at this point in his ministry, think that he's gone off the deep end, that he's a little cuckoo. And so they come to take him home. And Jesus, in responding to somebody telling him, hey, your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside and they want to talk to you, he stopped his speech, stopped his teaching and said, who's my mother and my brother and my sisters? And then he opened his arms and said, those who do the will of my father. We have a new family in Christ. I am more united with Joel than I ever was with my cousin, who was my first cousin by blood. So even though me and Doug, was his name, were kin, I am closer and a greater, tighter family member with Joel than I ever was with Doug. And I am with all of you, and you are all with me. When we are brought into the kingdom of God, there's a doctrine that is often neglected, and I probably should talk about it a little bit more, to be honest, but it's the doctrine of adoption, where you were not a part of the family of God. You were, in fact, an enemy of God, and God was hostile toward you. In fact, he was at war with you. He was at war with you for you, right? He went to war with you so that you would be redeemed and you would be saved. But you were at war with God and God was at war with you. But once you submit to Christ, once you're born again, once you're following him, there's something that takes place and you actually are adopted into the family of God. So much so that Christ says in several places, I no longer call you servants or friends, but I call you brothers. And we are. Romans chapter 8 is a good example of how Jesus is our brother because we are co-heirs in him. Heirs of the kingdom of God. Heirs of the riches of God. And so, you might think, well, this is way off 1 Timothy chapter 5. Well, it's not. Because the entire portion that we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is how to recombobulate your thinking. Right? Because before, your mind was discombobulated. You didn't think so. You thought things were right, and I I function in my family this way. I do these traditions, these particular cultural practices. But they were wrong. They were sinful a lot of times. They were in error. They brought disgrace to God, and in fact, were rebellious towards God. And now that we're in Christ, we need to reorient our thinking. 
And one of the important ways we reorient our thinking is that we think of one another as a family. And we think of one another as united to one another in the bonds of family relationship. So he begins here. Now the bulk of the section is about widows. That's why I went back to Acts chapter 6. But notice he does start with a few other categories. First of all, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32, it tells us that we are to honor the older men. In Proverbs, there's so many Proverbs that talk about the honoring of older people, respecting them. It'd be, it's very easy, and I've foolishly done this with my own father, where I have rebuked him and had to repent and done it sinfully towards him. Because I thought I just knew better, and I thought, well, this is what the Word of God says. Well, the Word of God says to treat him with respect. And to honor my father and mother. So as I come, if I have to rebuke an older man, notice everything that we're looking at in verses 1 and 2 are in reference to a rebuke. Rebuke an older man as you would a father. Rebuke a younger man as you would a brother. Rebuke an older woman as you would a mother. Rebuke a younger woman as you would as a sister in all purity. You see that? The implication is is that even though we're a new family and even though we're in Christ, we're still going to sin and mess up. I'm still going to offend you. I'm still going to sin against you. I'm still going to live in a manner that is unbecoming of Christ and is not treating you with the dignity and respect that you deserve not only because you have the image of God on your soul, but because you are my kin in Christ now. And so, if that thing happens and you are needing to come to me and rebuke me, what he's doing is laying out, here's the pattern and way to do it. Rebuke an older man as you would a father. That's very gently, tenderly, asking lots of questions and not going in with both guns blazing. In fact, we're not supposed to do that at all anymore in any ways. If we're to rebuke younger men, we're to do it as brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And all of it is to be done with the attitude of purity. I think that's pretty straightforward. If you do have questions about it, we can certainly talk about it later. But I think the instruction is given because there's a tendency in church to think more highly of yourself than you ought and to think more highly of other people than you ought to as well. Right? We want to give the benefit of the doubt and we want to think the best of other people. But oftentimes, we think too highly of other people. So we need to treat them in a manner that is befitting of who they are and they're going to sin against you. We shouldn't think, oh my gosh, he sinned against me and throw our hands up and say, I'm done with that relationship. You're not done. You're never going to be done. You're going to be with them in heaven for all eternity. And despite the fact you might think, yeah, well, there's going to be billions of people there. I got my corner of heaven. He can have his over there. If you think that's how heaven's going to work out, friend, you have another thing coming. (laughs) In fact, I, no, never mind. I'm going to move on. (laughs) Verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, he's going to define what a true widow is in verse 9. But this is an interesting passage. There are several different ways of looking at this. 
The first one is literally just honor, meaning I treat them with a different, different way of respect. And that's all it is. It's just honoring them and treating them with a higher level of dignity and respect. Another way is that we're talking about here just purely financial support. And that those who are truly widows are to be financially supported by the church. Another way of looking at this is that they are to be financially supported and to be honored as well. And the last one, which I will freely admit that I lean towards, is that this is a lot like the deaconate ministry. And what they're doing in being enrolled is they're serving the church in a very specific and particular way. And in doing so, meeting these qualifications, they're to be supported in their ministry as well, just like a pastor or somebody else who is supported by the church and ministering to the needs within the church. So that's my particular perspective on this. And it's open to disagreement. There's lots of good godly men in all of those different views that I brought up. None of them are carnal or demonic or anything like that. But that's my take on this. So as we look through this, hopefully you'll see why I'm saying this. But first of all, he says the honors widows who are truly widows. But then he qualifies. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, people regularly died in Bible days younger than they do today for all kinds of reasons. War, disease, bad, what? Cleanliness practices, all the kinds of things would lead to people dying younger in this day and this age. This is why this is such a, this is a big fat portion of the text. Paul took a lot of ink and paper to write all this out. This means this is pretty important and it's something that he probably is going to encounter on a regular basis. Now, we're not going to encounter this same problem near as much as they would have in Paul's day, okay? But here he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren. So, you can picture it. If I were to die and Andy was left a widow, she has children and a grandchild. Now, when I was a little, little kid, I thought grandmas were so old. (laughs) I thought they were just like so old. I thought my grand. All, both my grandmas were like easily in their 70s and 80s and 90s when I was little. And of course they weren't. <laughs> but I thought that. But here, the assumption is they're going to be young, like us. And we have children and grandchildren. So let them first show godliness to their own household and then return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. When husbands married wives in that day and age they would give a dowry to the father or to the woman. And what that was as kind of like alimony in advance, not that there's an expected divorce or something, but it was payment in advance. It was insurance for if I die, Andy's going to be supported for a time. So I give her, who, I give her 18 ox or something. 
That sounds silly and odd and weird, 18 ox, but now she has 18 ox that she is taking care of. She can breed, she can raise, she can you know, kill for me. If I were to die, she will be supported for quite a while. And the assumption is until she remarries. She can go back home and live with her parents if she does not have the means through a dowry to go to continue living on her own. She can, and raising her children, raising her grandchildren. If she doesn't, she's to go back under the care of her father until the time comes where she does remarry. And doing this is pleasing in the sight of God. That's a good and godly way of widows being treated and being cared for. And we don't have that same practice here in our day. But for the most part, when widows are, I mean, I, I talk with widows every single day, just about. And most of the time, they're not in the position where they absolutely have nothing. Most of the time, they're provided for in some way, shape, or form, either by the husband who's passed or by some other family members by the children, and they're taken care of. This is a pleasing thing in the sight of God. She is truly a widow, so here's part of the definition of what a true widow is. If she's left all alone, no children, no grandchildren, no parents, no other family members to come and take care of her. She is literally alone in this world. And she has set her hope on God. She is a lover of Christ. And she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So a person is truly a widow. She has no one else in her family to care for her. She has her hope set on God, not a hope on remarriage, not on hope on something more in this life. But she has set her hope and her attention on God and, her, and you, it's manifest in her supplications and prayers night and day. But an interesting contrast, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now I'm going to be honest, when I read the, the commentaries, there was all kinds of speculation about what exactly this was talking about. Because it kind of seems out of the blue. It, it kind of seems like a grind of the gears. I'm not entirely sure what's going on here, but that perhaps that there was some restraining factor involved in the life of this woman while her husband was alive, and now that he has passed, she goes off and lives a self-indulgent life. I kind of think maybe that's what he's getting at here. It might be, it looks like she's really good beforehand. She's doing all the good things. It seems like she's there at all the stuff or whatever. And then once the husband passes, all of a sudden that restraint is taken away. And she is no longer living a life that has her hopes set on God and continuing in supplications and prayer. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Men, we have a responsibility to take care of our families. I don't think I need to say that very strenuously and 
pointedly here in our congregation, but there certainly are congregations where this needs to be emphasized, where men are living lives that are reckless and immature, and they aren't taking care of their own. There are lots of people in churches all over the place where they are not taking care of their own. I've heard so many stories of when you know, something happens within a family, if there's a divorce or a separation or something, and the husband just quits taking care of his children and of his family. There's all kinds of ways and all kinds of little loopholes and ways we can find that this text needs to be emphasized. But the fact of the matter is, is that, men, we should be taking care of our families. So, to that end, be mindful of what's the best way to do that. How do we do this the best way? If my dad passes and my mom, who is still sick, doesn't have anyone to take care of her down in Southern California, what is going to be the best way for me to take care of and support my mom? That's a conversation that me and Andy have had and are going to need to continue to have and think through those things. Because if I don't take care of the members of my own household, what does it say about my faith? It says I've denied it. (laughs) And I'm worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words, beloved, right? Those are, I mean, Paul's not pulling any punches here. Uh, This is a strong, strong passage that probably isn't preached on and probably isn't thought of enough. But if we don't take care of our family, we have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So men, pray about this. Take this to heart. Think about what are the practical implications of this down the road. Do I need to do something to get something in place so that if something happens, or am I in a position where I could, if I needed to, help out right now? Verse 9. So, back to the true widow. Let a widow, a true widow, be enrolled. It's an interesting phrase. What is this role Well, the word isn't just like you're on a list. The word implies some kind of support. So she's enrolled to something and she's being supported in some way. Doesn't necessarily mean financially, but let's face it, in the context of the rest of the passage, how can you escape that, right? Seems like it has to mean supported. A widow should be supported or enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age and having been the wife of one husband. Now, 60 years of age would have been extremely old in that day and age. It would have been very remarkable. And for her to have reached this age and completely have no one around her, you can see that she would be in a very tough spot as it was. Having been the husband of, pardon me, the husband, the wife of one husband, I don't think here the point is if there was a death, there was never a remarriage, remarriage along the way because Paul implies later on that when a wo- woman has a husband who dies, there's going to come a time when she's young enough she's going to want to remarry, and that's a good thing. In fact, he says it's a good thing in 1 Corinthians explicitly. So, 
Here, I think he's saying that she was not polygamous or she didn't have, you know, wasn't sleeping around and all that kind of thing. She had a reputation of being a one-man woman. A lot like the qualifications of elders, that the elder would be a one-woman man. Having a reputation for good works. And he explains what these good works are that she ought to have a reputation for. Now, I don't think that this is intended to be a list that you're to go down and tick the boxes. I think here he's giving an example of here's what somebody who has a good reputation might have in the way of their actions. So she has brought up her children. Maybe this widow never had children, right? Sometimes husbands and wives get married, they live throughout their lives, and they never have kids. I don't think she would be disqualified from this list if everything else is met. You see what I mean? You see why I'm saying I think this isn't boxes to be ticked, but just general principles that these are kinds of good works that should be in her character. That she has shown hospitality. She has washed the feet of the saints. She has cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. That's the kind of person that you want to have in a prayer ministry, a helps ministry, someone who's looking out for the needs of the rest of the church, because apparently she's already basically lived like this for most of her life. This is a good woman. This is a quality gal. Right? We want her enrolled in here. We want to support her. She has given her life already in the ways of bringing up her kids if she had them. She's shown hospitality to all kinds of people. She's washed the feet of the saints, whether that means literally, which maybe that was from time to time, or it simply means that she lived a sacrificial life like Christ commanded in John chapter 13. She has cared for those who are afflicted. She's taking care of the sick within the body, right? We see that with Dorcas, unfortunate name, awesome gal in the book of Acts, where she makes clothing for those who are sick, makes blankets for those who are sick and don't have any, that she regularly made things with her hands and contributed to the needs within the church. That is a caring for the afflicted ministry. That's a washing of the feet of the saints ministry. And she has devoted herself to every good work. That she's someone that when we look at her, we say, yeah, that's my grandma. Right? We've all had those people in our lives that maybe aren't literally our grandmas, but we look at them and go, yeah, she's awesome. Right? We need those people within the church. We need those people within the church. But refuse to enroll or refuse to support younger widows. Now, there is something implied in this that when a widow joins this particular ministry, that she is acknowledging that she's not going to get remarried and she's going to live the rest of her life as a single woman devoted to God and devoted to the needs of the church. And so in that light, because she's being supported by the church and she's no longer going to be supported by another man, whether it's her father or her husband or whoever it is, that she has her mind set on the church. Younger women, younger widows, not so. 
And this is okay. This is, this is not a bad thing that he's bringing up here. Younger women, don't enroll them. The temptation might be there, right? The temptation might be there for somebody who's younger, whose husband has died. It's a tragic situation. And you think, oh, and she's, she's devoted to the Lord. She loves the Lord. She's showing all of these qualities. But she's young. Don't enroll her because when her passions draw her away from Christ. Now, that sounds like a losing your salvation kind of thing. But of course, that's not what's happening. Right? She would have devoted herself to Christ in ministry, but then falls in love with a guy again. And she's young enough to marry and still have a full life with this guy. That's what he's talking about here. Going back on your vows. When their passions draw them away and they desire to, met, to marry and so incur a condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. That means they've abandoned that particular stage. Like, don't set people up for failure. Right? Don't set people up for failure. So this woman over there, she's a younger woman. You feel bad. Don't let your sympathy rule the situation. Don't let feelings be the one, what guides you. Because this might not be the best thing for her. Think this through. Pray this through. Because you don't want her to make some kind of vow to the Lord. And then to fall in love and go on and break that vow. And then she's guilt ridden for the rest of her life because of this. You see what Paul is wisely laying out here. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry and bear children and manage their households and give no, the adversary no occasion for slander. Now this whole thing about going from house to house and being idle, you understand that what the widows who are true widows indeed are doing is that they are going to meet the needs of individuals within households. And the maturity that comes with this kind of age is going to mean that they're going to go into these situations and they're going to know how to wisely deal with each situation as they enter in, as they talk with people, as they pray with people. And they don't go around from house to house being idle and busybody and gossiping. You can see that that's a temptation, right? You can see that you go over here and you pray with this person and you go over here and pray with somebody else and then as you're talking with this somebody else, something comes up and you go, oh yeah, yeah, well this over here and then all of a sudden there's some things going on that shouldn't be going on in terms of tail bearing. Now that's not exclusive to women. Don't think that that's why he's bringing that up here. He's giving a wise instruction for why these younger women shouldn't be enrolled in this particular type of ministry in this time. He's saying, give them time to grieve and then go remarry and have good godly lives. That's what he's getting at here. For some have already strayed after Satan. But if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for widows Pardon me, those who are truly widows. So if a believing woman has relatives, the relatives need to care for her. The church shouldn't be financially burdened in caring for those who are able to have their needs met elsewhere. So 
We got no widows. Why even spend a Sunday on this? Why even take the time to go through this? We don't, we're not in any threat of having a meeting anytime soon where we're going to need to decide if we're going to enroll widows into the deaconate ministry. Right? <laughs> well, of course there's implications here. And there are other situations and circumstances that we find ourselves culturally in here in this day and this age that yes, this might not be a direct one-to-one application, but we can certainly see principles that lead and guide us in how to function and serve one another. Primarily, we are now a family. We need to take care of our own. We need to take care of one another. People within the church might not have those outside of the church who are willing or able to take care of them within the church. So we need to be ready and mindful in how to take care of our own. This, while we're not enrolling somebody in a deaconate ministry, there might be a time and a place where we need to help out and support a single mom. There might be a time and a place where we need to help out and support a guy who is in the military and is shipped overseas and we need to support him by sending him care packages and love and letters regularly so he knows he's not forgotten and left behind. There might be a time and a place where we have somebody who comes in within our church and they are in a destitute situation and they have no other means by which they can be helped and we've tried and we've pursued all of these other avenues and for a time we might need to see what we can do to help them out. this, This is the implication of this particular passage is that we need to be ready and able to take care of our own and help our own out. Now, if we do come to the place where we do have widows who completely fit this specific category of widows indeed, we really should pray about how can we do this? How can we make this actionable? How can we take this in 2019 and apply this to our church and see this particular ministry thriving? I think this is vital, and I think it's important for us to pray through and think through so that if there ever is a time where we have this situation, we're ready to meet those needs and we're ready to enroll those people. And I think our church will, be, will thrive because of it. And the reason is, is because we are now part of the family of God. And we really love one another. We love each other dearly and deeply and passionately. And it's important that we take care of each other. And the best way we can do that is see what does scripture say and how I'm to treat one another and love one another and then to go out and fulfill that as best I can. And that will bring glory to Christ and honor to his church. Lord, I know it's one of those attractive things to the world out there when they see the church actually taking care of people within the church. And so I ask and pray, Lord, that as This particular issue we don't specifically have in our context. Lord, do we have something else that we can see these principles finding an application in? Lord, we pray that you would take us as your family and that you would unite us together and bring us closer to you, to your image, and to the faith that we have in you. May we be a united family, a united body that loves and serves you deeply. 
all for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.